Deserve presents the Create Wealth Podcast with Sandeep Jadwani. Neil, how does a boy from Pune become one of, and I'm, this is going to be controversial, become one of India's most well-known financial influencers? Oh God! Incidentally, there's a lady from Pune who is uh, a much bigger uh, financial influencer. We'll come to that also. <laughs> no, very meandering path here. Uh, I studied law. and after studying law i had the late realization that i wanted to move into finance partly because my parents are doctors and mm-hmm. they were asking me a lot about managing money about their money it is really weird i was a kid i didn't know anything hmm. um but i began reading up and it was going like going down the rabbit hole so i switched fields and i did a second degree in economics and then a post graduation in finance uh and then cfa level 1 so spent a lot of years in education far too many for any rational person um and then i worked for a while for um a sebi registered investment advisor mm-hmm. and initially i thought that would be my career path mm. but then um but the wages were kind of low back then so um so when i was doing research my favorite website value research had a vacancy and i thought chalo chance marte let's apply and i did and they liked my write up so they flew me to delhi and that's how i got into this field writing about finance and i was really lucky because dhirendra kumar is a fountain of knowledge he's been that's right in this industry since the early 90s and um, there are it's not a big company so i was directly working for him he shaped a lot of my thinking mm-hmm. and uh, i was there for about almost 2 years um then i was in a fintech before um, before mint happened so basically my former boss at mint was following me on twitter reading my tweets and uh, she asked me if i wanted to work in mint and that was a dream so jumped at the chance here i am so it was never like a thing that you want to become a journalist or get into this part of uh, you know writing about finance it just sort of happened as it went along i'll be honest i wanted to make enough money that i will never have to work again uh, that never happened unfortunately um so so here i am so tell me uh, neil like out of the multiple professions like you could have been a wealth manager i guess um uh, you can join a fund and become a investment manager uh but journalism just outside and feels like it probably is one of those professions which requires you to commit yourself intensely but i'm not very sure of the financial rewards that come out of it right what is like the life of or what is the compensation structure for a journalist should people think of becoming journalists so how 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 should we think about that so uh, historically journalism has been a service profession like teaching you're not supposed to make money out of it you're not supposed to get rich mm. doing journalism so teaching nowadays is very lucrative actually that's yeah that's changed um so in this neck of the woods which is financial journalism it is uh, financially the most well paid mm. uh, as a sub part mm. um that said of course we will never make the kind of money that financial professionals make that people on amcs or anything like that hmm. but there's enough money that you can live a comfortable middle class life you can tick off most of life's goals and then it opens up a bunch of paths hmm. so uh, there are journalists who actually gone into fund management i think kenneth andrade at one point was yeah. a journalist yeah 
because you develop domain expertise sure and and that's valuable it lets you transition into other industries mm. eventually if that's the path that you want to go down um then a lot of journalists go into corporate communications which is instantly more financially rewarding um but per se just by being a journalist by being a salaried one it's not um you can't build serious wealth through it but you do have the satisfaction of helping people and of shaping the course of history but it feels like you know that a lot of credible journalists are today able to gather significant followership right so if a high quality journalist were writing for media house x versus media house y if they move to y i would probably buy the content from media house y just because this person is writing there right and then there are second like i've seen shekhar gupta set up a youtube channel and uh talk there etc right which i suspect is also a monetizable thing for him right so are journalists also beginning to think around those lines that either uh, be able to command the followership and therefore get more money or set up their own channels to be able to monetize you're right and that's a really good trend because it liberates them from the control of just a few business houses mm. um it creates competition in the market so in fact they've set a trend shekhar gupta barkha dat a lot of mm. journalists have gone independent fade souza mm. and and they've blazed a trail that a lot of us you know might one day go down you know the interesting thing i was following this uh, american journalist uh, he's a conservative uh, tucker carlson mm. is i hope i got the name right where he is where i think uh, exited fox news mm. and started his own channel on x or yeah, uh, formerly twitter. Twitter, formerly twitter and apparently he's getting way more views than he had got when he was on fox news right and that seems to there seems to be something there now clearly for x.com it's a way to monetize uh, they're probably paying him for the number of views he's generating uh and i think that's pretty cool because he can retain his independence and yet get compensated for it yeah absolutely yeah and you know but in at some point this tends to begin to overlap with financial influencers right it does it does and i often get called a uh, financial influencer what i think separates me from influencers um is number one the structure of organized media is such mm. that we thankfully have walls um if somebody if tomorrow you were to give an ad in mint it would not change my opinion of you editorially hmm. um whereas if i were a influencer it would be much more easy to for me to go out there and do a promotional video mm-hmm. um the other thing is that because i have a i get a fixed salary every month it liberates me from the need to go out and promote crypto go out and promote sure. some solar thing you know i could not put out a single tweet all day mm. i could not do anything and still i get paid my salary so mm. that allows me to really think independently and think about the public yeah yeah i guess uh, it boils down to personal ethics also like even as an influencer i guess because the platform that you're on is paying you for the views that you're generating that is in a way can be one stream of income it's about how much extra that and it's very like similar to wealth managers in a sense right we will get paid for sure the question is how how much is enough yeah and how much do you want to squeeze the last penny out of correct correct yeah neil just on this issue of salaries right 
just walk me through what the totem pole of salaries are like in let's say a pink paper what does the entry level journalist make and what does like a the editor of the newspaper <laughs> make you're going to get me in trouble for this um and honestly i don't know the whole yeah range. but just ballpark numbers like yeah. you know because there might be people who may be interested in wanting to become a journalist and it will be helpful for them to yeah okay so i'm going to give two disclaimers before i give sure. some numbers uh number one that um, as i said financial journalism is the slightly better paid variant sure secondly it's a hockey stick curve so it mm-hmm. begins at a very low level mm-hmm. uh, and that's probably an industry problem because we are failing to attract the best talent mm-hmm. but then uh, if you do well your pay becomes uh, becomes high by quite a large margin sure so roughly i would put the en- entry level salary at um, just about 5 lakhs a year sure um but after 3 5 years in the profession then you would end up about double that mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. and then it really depends on your uh, value in the in the organization how well the paper itself is doing etc so mm. at the very top level the pay is comparable a little bit with the senior execs in in financial uh, services sure uh, nothing like the let's say let's say a fund manager gets 5 crores so an editor mm. at, at a financial paper will not get that yeah. much sure but um it would pr- be in within side of a crore within side of a crore yeah so there is a pathway if you do well uh, to scale up and like do you f- do you see journalists continuing to be journalists or like have, have you seen people switch to corporate community because i i've seen some of uh, folks in this industry move to the side of the corporate where they are now representing or to pr agencies where they are working uh, on behalf of other clients so what is it are, are there like other exit paths which are monetizable too yes so uh, the two that you outlined are the most common ones and they immediately lead to a hike hmm. in pay hmm. um but i personally see it as something of a dead end because hmm. and i'm going to get so much in so much trouble on this from folks in pr and corpcom but um because my voice is just so important to me like sure. n- no amount of money in the world is going to make me want to give up my voice sure uh, the other thing uh, neil is that you know you're writing yourself about uh, investing right and but investing is also very personal so on one sense like in a, in a sense you're talking about how people should manage their money uh while knowing that to every context it is different i'm curious how you personally invest yeah where is neil's own money deployed yes um so i'm about 50% in equities okay. um a lot of it in one mutual fund and this is something that i do because i have a lot of conviction in that mutual fund mm. i wouldn't suggest it for everyone mm. then i have uh, some money in debt because this was before the debt fund tax came into play mm. so now i'm although i invested before the before that tax so thank you so your grandfather the money is my money yeah. is grandfathered thankfully yeah. uh, but for fresh money which i want to put into debt i'm really uh, perplexed i don't have a solution right now yeah um then i invest in gold through mm-hmm. gold etfs it's a little sub optimal because sgbs do give interest and gold etfs don't mm. um but it's just so smooth to mm. do it uh, i have a you know broking account it's just so much smoother yeah and uh, i have some money in nift very small in nifty etfs um eventually i think i will shift entirely to passive because i think eventually all alpha runs out 
but I think there is some juice to go in mm-hmm. the active funds that I'm invested in. And NPS. NPS, uh, I'm quite bullish yes, about. Of course. You, you've spoken a lot about it. Yes. Yeah. No, I think it's interesting. And you know, what's refreshing for me is the fact that even somebody who's highly aware as much as you are, you do believe in the power of mutual funds, right? The tax advantage uh, is very large for mutual funds. And over time, you have more money to continue investing, right? Because in a mutual fund, you don't pay tax till the time you exit that particular fund, which essentially means that that money which you're not paying as tax is compounding over time. And that in itself is adding uh, returns. Uh, You know, and you refer to active versus passive and we have a strong view on that, that some of these are sort of cyclical in a sense, right? There are times when passives do well, there are times when actives do well and there are parts of the market for which maybe actives will do better than passives and vice versa, right? And I think it's the job of the allocators to try and help somebody figure this out. And sort of that brings me to this other point which you've been very vocal about is that there are just not enough uh, advisors uh, out there, right? You yourself, SEBI registered RIA at one point in time. I worked Uh, for one. I was not. You worked for one. Uh, But why, what is the real challenge? What is actually happening here? Uh, I mean, there is potentially one side of things which is the regulatory restrictions around it. But is there something about the Indian investor also that is inhibiting the growth of RIs? Yeah. So uh, there is this traditional reluctance to pay fees and RIs are supposed to only charge fees and not take any commissions. Mm. Um, I think that is changing. It's changing because other parts of life involve paying fees and people are getting used to it. They're Mm. used to paying subscription fees for OTT, Netflix, etc. For newspapers like ours. Um, you know, when you go and see a doctor or a lawyer, you end up paying fees. People are okay with that. Mm-hmm. And I think increasingly they will be okay with paying fees even for uh, for financial advice. Mm-hmm. The bigger, much bigger barrier is the incredible over-regulation of RIS that has throttled the industry, that's killed the industry. So I'll name a few things. Mm-hmm. Um, to begin with, just to be a person associated with financial advice, just an assistant to an RIA, you have to have a postgraduate degree only in certain subjects and two years of experience. Now, if you take that one by one, postgraduate degree, you know, there are IIMs which have a one-year degree. Why do you need a two-year degree? Mm. Um, a lot of people go abroad, you know, abroad, a lot of places have one-year mm. uh, master's degrees. Mm. Um, now, let's come to the experience part. Now, it's a chicken and egg situation because to work in an RIA, you need to have experience. But uh, to be to get the experience, you have to work in an RIA. So what they essentially are saying is you have to have experience elsewhere in financial services and distribution, etc. Mm-hmm. Then have a magical change of heart and move to RI, which makes no sense to me. Mm. So that's one side of it. That constricts the supply of entry-level people in the RI profession. Um, then ex- established RIAs have to give the same NISM exam every three years. This is not found in any profession in India. My parents are doctors Mm. for them and they deal with life and death Mm. for their continuing professional education. They have to attend a few lectures. That's it. Mm. Here you are expecting people who have spent 15, 20 years in the industry to give the same entry level exam every three years. Mm. Then there's another regulation which says you can't collect more than two quarters of fees in advance. Mm. Now, often you are making plans for four, five, six, ten years. Mm. What if somebody just pays you one quarter and then says, okay, you've given the plan now, tata, bye bye. Mm. It's not fair. So 
there are so many rules and regulations is unnecessarily strangling this industry yeah and uh, and the other part you you believe that people will be willing to pay fees if some of these are sorted 100% it is not going to happen overnight it's a gradual thing but people are getting used to it but when it comes to any sort of fixed fee there seems to be reluctance uh, and i guess in india in multiple parts of our life there is evidence of that right uh, for example i was talking to somebody at delivery and it seems like uh, tipping is not very common in india right uh, it is something which is why service charge has to be sort of embedded into the restaurant uh, bill itself so is like that something that i'm concerned more about that is that something that we need to do more education about and help people understand that there is need to pay fees you're right it needs a bit of a push and i think that pushes when you make it mandatory for distributors to display the commissions that they're earning hmm. off of mutual funds every year yeah and just think about it. anybody with a 1 crore portfolio also and a lot of middle class indians would have that hmm. kind of portfolio in mutual funds they might be paying somewhere from 50000 to a lakh of rupees every year hmm. which professional which i don't remember the last time i paid my doctor 1 lakh rupees hmm. so uh, once that is displayed prominently then that psychology towards fees will change i agree in fact it is embedded in that uh, uh, document which comes from the nsdl or cdsl ecas yeah. that has the but it's buried in a but it's buried inside and therefore maybe there could be a mechanism for the distributor to themselves prominently displayed as is captured in the portfolio manager regulations where we not only have to tell you what fees we are charging you but also if we have a distributor what we are uh, paying, uh, them. paying them and that brings me to this other point you know on your twitter handle on a regular basis there is this whole thing where people are requesting you for access to mint subscriptions right and i i believe you give out 5 a day uh why do you think that happens like it is something that inherently a lot of the folks on twitter probably can afford right and yet we see this behavior playing out yeah and especially the ones who follow me i think you know roughly i would cater to the 1% or maybe the 0.1% of india sure um but it's just the pull of free stuff no matter how much money you you make i had a friend um who who earns who lives abroad who earns in crores mm mm-hmm. and every time he goes to a five star hotel he makes mm-hmm. sure to take the toiletries whatever he can the toothbrush the toothpaste puts it in his bag so so people love freebies and uh, you know especially with credit cards that's just extremely evident uh neil you've written a lot about the issues that the middle class and potentially the upper middle class indians face when it comes to personal finance i see stories written about uh raising children and the cost of that uh buying homes versus renting and all of that right what are some of the most interesting insights that which are potentially counterintuitive when it comes to the upper middle class or middle class indian like what are some of the behaviors that you feel that you wouldn't have like assumed but actually on ground are really different there was one story that we did it's not exactly about middle class mm-hmm. uh, but one assumption that everyone makes is that when you get older you're supposed to be in fixed income you're supposed to be risk averse you're supposed to yeah stay at 100 minus age correct is correct equity is the, allocation is the prevailing logic yeah a lot of indians very very seriously want to leave a legacy for their children and their grandchildren so mm. sometimes we interview families about their asset allocation and 
there was one story we did of three generations mm. grandmother son and and grandson mm. the grandmother had the highest equity allocation because yeah. she was so interested in leaving that legacy uh and that's part of the reason why annuities are just not popular in india mm. so much opposition to them mm. correct no actually this is very interesting because you know a lot of these sort of principles of investing were built in the west which has a very different social structure than india has right where uh, both parents and older children sort of fend for themselves but in india uh, in the construct that we are in and i think that's a great thing where we take care of our older parents then why should somebody with a meaningful sum of money in the late years of their life not have higher equity allocation right the second thing is we also own the primary home that we live in right which yeah. is probably the first purchase that we do when we have enough money correct uh and in that's not common again in the us or the home equity is very low as a percentage of the loan that you have so i think some of these means that those kind of 100 minus age is equity allocation are probably not appropriate principles for india yeah and the other thing like which you know we have noticed is that in the west a lot of like practically everyone has a financial advisor and in india uh, there are like people don't and therefore everyone is going online to try and figure out a financial advisor on youtube right yeah uh, talk to me about that aspect and i know you feel very strongly about the influencers we refer to that earlier on Wh- what is it that the regulator needs to do to make sure that these issues don't arise because at the face of it some of these guys are also doing some education right so they are evangelizing finance personal finance etc so how should the regulator treat this matter yeah it's a difficult question because on the one hand you have freedom of speech under our constitution mm. you can't throttle that because that will have so many other negative effects mm. on the other hand there is a problem because uh, these influencers so we did a story on mm. who is funding the influencers and we found that a lot of it was brokers and a lot of the times they were getting a cut out of every single trade that their followers made mm. because uh, they give affiliate links if you click on the affiliate link and you open that brokerage account then the broker is able to give a cut hmm. and this is an unhealthy cycle because then the influencer makes another video which induces you to trade hmm. and yet more commissions go to that person hmm. um that's one problem with them the other one is that often they don't disclose that a particular video or post is sponsored hmm. and nobody's checking this they're under no legal obligation to disclose this stuff um so just yesterday i was looking at ascii the mm. advertising standards council of india um because ascii uh, has some monitoring of this and it looks it has looked at some cases investigated some cases um but unfortunately ascii has no legal powers it mm. it investigates it issues orders and there's no penalties mm. sometimes i wonder what is the point of doing all that work <laughs> um so so this is actually causing real harm to indian investors you know we saw that with the vault episode where they were selling uh, crypto as fd mm. and typically you will find that apart from brokers the people who use influencers to advertise mm. are the the risky end of the of the market usually mm. is undeclared products that are trying new things mm. because with the established players like a mutual fund they have a big reputation to protect to protect yeah they're going to be very very careful about using a influencer. Mm. So so you have this problem of influencers 
generally tending to advertise high risk unregulated products hmm. so now the question is how do you solve this without infringing on freedom of speech the plan that sebi has outlined in the last press conference makes a lot of sense um, sebi essentially has said that we will cut off the influencers from the regulated part of the market hmm. we will stop this advertising these links all of this you cut off the money um the other things i have said is that if you give an inducement to trade then we'll come after you mm-hmm. again makes a lot of sense um where the plan fails is when you have unregulated products advertising through influencers because they are mm-hmm. out anyway outside sebi's jurisdiction mm-hmm. or you have nbfcs or you have insurance companies doing it um but it is a start i honestly can't think of a better plan right now mm-hmm. so with all its imperfections i hope sebi speedily implements the proposals that it has outlined yeah i think uh, at least there is a step in the right direction and potentially other regulators will pick up on this and work towards it you know so there was this first podcast that we recorded uh, was with incidentally with raj chamani right in this series of which this ser- this podcast is also part of and i put the same question to raj about uh, influencers being out there in the finance domain and he said that the biggest reason that that is happening is industry folks like me are not out there talking about what we should be and we are not simplifying finance to the point where people are able to connect with it and i thought there was a point there that maybe while there is a part of the responsibility that regulators and financial influencers bear for what's happening but maybe finance folks like us also need to step in to be able to talk f- openly uh and like really shape communication in a way that people can understand i fully agree and it is as much a failure of the media the organized financial media hmm. that allowed this to happen um for example i used to think of my instagram account as a place where you put cat photos and baby photos uh but there were people who used it successfully to build a massive follower base yeah but hopefully we are correcting some of those past mistakes yeah i and i see a lot of uh, especially new age investing platforms including some asset managers also now get out there and put people out the only thing i feel is the skill set that sometimes it takes to run a financial services business uh, and to be able to do uh, what we are doing today is is the challenging part of it and for us to put ourselves out there is something that we haven't done very easily so maybe there are like we also need to figure out how influencers got to the point and work towards that correct correct so if you look at how influencers operate they will make videos on whatever is trending at that point of time so one mm. day it'll be finance next day it'll be health third day it'll be you know elections are coming so government and politics mm. fourth day it'll be food they they essentially their job is influencing their job is not finance um so but and and we i don't think we in the organized financial industry can become that or should aspire to become mm-hmm. that but at least in our neck of the woods yes you're absolutely right we need to be more out there uh neil do you feel wealthy personally uh i have enough to lead a comfortable life and i have the chance to um, shape history in a sense so i do and what like if you look at and since you know you cover this space of personal finance what is a wealthy person in india what's the net worth of a what would you consider a wealthy person in india i'll i'll tell you why because wealth is 
such a uh, uh, thing about like you're wealthy if you have more money than your neighbor <laughs> right and uh, it's so relative right so what is it what's the actual number in india that you would consider to be wealthy no i just thought about my neighbors and i definitely don't have enough as much money as they do <laughs> one more disclaimer that i would add is it depends on how large your family is right because sure. uh, so per head is a different number got it um if you are young let's say if by the age of uh, 35 if you built assets of at least a crore uh, then you're on a good path um but you know by the age of say 50 60 to retire on um you should have assets in the multiples of crores to lead a decent upper middle class life i would say um we ran into some controversy actually we we uh, when we did a we have a series called guru portfolio and yes. we ask people so we are saurav mukherjee as to how much uh, money he needs he, he has targeted for the retirement corpus and he said 20 crores and people thought that was a gross underestimate um but that aside i think to have money in uh, some multiples of crores uh, is is at at that time of retirement is is good enough is is good is what you should target neil i think you know today when i see a lot of youngsters there is uh, this whole concept of uh, you know retire early and to be able to do that what you become financially independent right so you have enough corpus to as they call it get fired right uh, which is uh, uh, financial independence and then retire early what is your perspective what's your take on this whole almost like a movement which seems like running around i think they need to spend more time with the tired people <laughs> because honestly people get so bored in retirement yeah um my parents i mean both of them uh, are retired and they have my mother does a lot of social work etc but there are they had a hard time adjusting to life without work yeah um so a lot of people are hunkering after fire need to really think that what is it they're going to do all day once once they have the money yeah. um so i'm all for the movement it's a fantastic goal it should especially the five part the financial independence part because you should work out of passion out of love more than money yeah um but yeah people have to think really carefully why you want to retire you know i actually i think that it's something that's not doing service this whole concept and you know vocabulary is very important in everything that we do right so the moment we coined this term fire we are almost kind of pushing for a get rich quick kind of a situation that i you're creating additional pressure on yourself mm. and that causes you to take suboptimal decisions not only in your personal life and career but also in terms of investments and there was strong evidence of that during the covid time when in as they call the zer para with zero interest rate policy when a lot of assets were going up and there was this craze for these high growth assets so that you could retire early right it was almost justified in that context yeah yeah um and there's another related thought actually which is why wait till you retire to enjoy life yeah cuz your body is not going to support you not going to be the same all throughout your life yeah i had a fracture in uh, in april and suddenly it made me realize that you know even though i'm young anything can happen and suddenly all of those things that i've been postponing 
I might never be able to do. What do I do with multiple crores in retirement if I if I'm confined to my bed? Hmm. So people who are doing fire should try and distribute some spending in their youth as well. Yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, Neil, the interesting thing is most of people invest to be able to live. Uh you've written a book on somebody who lived to invest, right? Rakesh Junjunwala, uh the big bull of the Indian markets. quoted controversy at different points of time in how would you describe the person because a lot of his investment choices potentially were a reflection of who he was at the point when he took those calls you're so right it ties so much into because his initial money in the mm. 1990s was made through leverage trading sure he was taking it all over and over again mm. um and if you think of how he led his life to the fullest mm. you know and that is also the time that he was drinking after work every day um he clearly wasn't doing that uh thing where you know you save every penny and you invest prudently and all of that he mm. was he was essentially gambling in different parts of his life yeah uh, it paid off and that's great for him i think a lot of people you know there are short hundreds of rakeshs who we've never heard about for whom it didn't go right mm. um so there are different lessons you can take from his life mm. uh the gambling part is probably not the best one to take mm. but yes i fully acknowledge he, he did he did, did that in so and also i guess he transitioned from the gambling to investing at some point of time right with setting up rare became a formal enterprise and continues to run uh, today right you know i remember this uh, uh, and to your point about what should what are you really emulating right uh in the early 2000s when i started my career i used to work at nariman point and uh, there is this uh, uh you know bar jeffries where which used to be his favorite hangout watering right? hole watering hole every evening and you know one of the rare because we couldn't afford being there but one of we went there and i was told this is the man who's like and if you do like if he can sit here every night and every evening and have a drink and yet be productive why can't you be right yeah, yeah. and sometimes you know when when it comes to successful folks we assume that if this part of the personality is fine then we can replicate that and we also can be fine right and that it life doesn't work like yeah, that yeah. interesting tidbit he was not the biggest tipper there he was not he, would he, he ask the waiters but he was not the biggest yeah interesting i think because he was clearly their biggest customer uh, and the reason we all know jeffries is because he used to uh, go there the last few years have been crazy in terms of new types of investment options arising right we have all while we had mutual funds and pmss and eifs for the longest time but we've had direct uh, you know unlisted shares we've had crypto we've had lease and financing invoice discounting etc how would you rank these assets in terms of somebody building their portfolio like how what should be the prioritization that somebody should have and whether or not they should do some of these to begin with yeah so to start with of course emergency fund 6 months of expenses should be set aside mm. um then it depends on that person's risk appetite and their uh their how long they can stay invested uh assuming that person is young then definitely starting with equity as early as possible uh ideally through sips um 
only when you've built enough money that there is some money that you can literally throw away you know be be okay with it if it goes to zero does it make sense to dabble in stuff like invoice discounting or um or any of the other options that you mentioned even then there are things like crypto which i would still would say do not make any sense mm-hmm. but um in in that gray zone maybe even investing in startups etc but that's only after you've built a core mm. yeah i guess uh, it's about when you reach that stage that you should do it and like you rightly said anything which is outside the regulated domain is something that we all have to be really careful about irrespective of how much money we have uh neil this has been fantastic uh you know it's amazing that how you've been able to roll up financial advice journalism uh influencing all into one career uh and uh, godspeed to you thank you so much sandeep thanks for having me